Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Surveillance technologies, and specifically Chinese surveillance technologies in Africa, are the subject of intense debate these days. My name is Zunke Yoran, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Jili Bulilani, a futures fellow here at Merricks and a PhD candidate at Harvard University. His research includes Africa-China relations, cybersecurity, ICT development, and internet policy. He has advised the Freedom House Africa program and supported the Center for Strategic and International Studies Human Rights Initiative, and has recently published a paper on the export of Chinese surveillance technology in Africa, which is the focus of today's conversation. Jili, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me here. So let's start at the macro level. How is the digitalization developing in Africa, and which countries are seeing the most innovation and adoption? In terms of uh, the macro level, uh, what we're seeing is that uh, many African countries, but particularly Kenya, are aiming to leverage ICT products, so information and communication technologies, as an instrument of development. This is uh, not a, a recent phenomenon. In fact, it's kind of been stretching for the last two decades and a bit more on how to best utilize ICT infrastructure for the further uh, movement uh, of an economy. And so in terms of more broadly thinking about some of the countries that are best utilizing these instruments, Kenya is definitely one of the leaders, but also Nigeria, South Africa. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Ethiopia is also interested in kind of best utilizing ICT infrastructure uh, for their developmental goals. So how would you define ICT infrastructure? So ICT is the information and communication technologies that are utilized by private actors, uh, but in the case of Africa, mostly public actors for development. And so this can include things like pylons and uh, fiber optic cables and so forth. So thinking about really all the kind of hardware that is necessary to power a technologically inclined economy. In the EU and the US, and many Western countries for that matter, the role of Chinese companies in exporting tools for public security management or surveillance has sparked a really intense debate about digital authoritarianism. One example from this year is when the European Parliament removed cameras made by Hikvision, a Chinese firm, for security concerns and citing human rights abuses. Would you say that China is already successfully promoting its surveillance and public security system in Africa, or are there large differences between the domestic system and the form of government it supports abroad? Yeah, sure. So this is definitely uh, one of the kind of the key questions that emerges within both the kind of public imagination in terms of uh, China's broad engagements. Within my own personal research, I actually kind of really attempt to test out this hypothesis in terms of the exportation of surveillance and um, governance practices by China. And thus far, there's really no immediate robust evidence that illustrates a normative exportation, both of values and practice by China. But that in itself does not necessarily mean 
that there aren't unwarranted surveillance practices being carried out. What I try and point towards is, is that um, China is indeed exporting surveillance goods, but the exportation of those goods are contingent on domestic demand. And so what we're seeing is a kind of a coming together of both supply and demand of the proliferation of these goods. And so then the question uh, that I really wrestle with in my work is, uh, why is there such a large demand for some of these surveillance goods? And why are they being distributed across the political spectrum in Africa? So it's not simply authoritarian states that are adopting some of these surveillance goods. You also see relatively robust democracies like South Africa and Kenya also taking them on. And when they're being integrated into their policing services and their broader security apparatus, what we're seeing is that they're being framed in part as instruments of development. But when you kind of look at the data in terms of the kind of the implementation of surveillance goods for policing, there is no immediate kind of quarterly outcome, right? So when the police does take on these surveillance goods, it doesn't necessarily reduce crime. And so that raises a series of questions for us in terms of, you know, you know, why are they still being in disproportional demand, even though there doesn't seem to be an immediate benefit for it? Obviously, some of them are taking on these technologies for larger reasons than simply you know, reductions in crime. Generally, a lot of the time, these technologies are coming as, you know, larger assemblages that it also includes support for administrative purposes and e-education and e-governance and so forth. You, you mentioned your research focuses a lot on Kenya and Ethiopia. Why are these countries good case studies for this issue? And, and what examples of Chinese surveillance technology involvement have you found there? So I partly look into these countries because... When you both kind of look at them, you know, one is, is a relative robust democracy, the other is, has a kind of a, an authoritarian predilection. Uh, both have received substantial ICT investments from China, in part, specifically, in part, they've also received really the largest investments from China in the ICT space in Africa. Both of them also don't really have substantively large raw materials, which is kind of contradictory to the story of Africa-China, that you know China is going into Africa simply for extractive industry and purposes. But these two kind of case examples illustrate a Chinese engagement that goes beyond a kind of the traditional conceptualization of how China chooses to interact with the world, and specifically with Africa. And, and so they, they kind of presented somewhat of an outlier case. And what I aim to kind of somewhat illustrate with this engagement is that, you know, in part, Chinese engagement is not simply contingent on a kind of reductionist economic activity, but it's also preoccupied with a diplomatic strategy. And that, that diplomatic strategy is about, in, in part, building relations uh, with African countries. And um, Africa, in general, has had somewhat of, a, of an important role for Chinese diplomacy, specifically at the kind of intergovernmental level in terms of supporting them either at the WTO or supporting them in the UN. And then another part of it is that it's kind of helping China almost brand itself as an alternative developmental partner, development partner that is willing to meet African countries where they are in, in terms of their own, you know, economic and developmental ambitions. So rather than having somewhat of a, a prescriptive sense of how to develop, which was a consequence of some of the kind of structural adjustment period uh, activities by the World Bank, 
China is offering a kind of more dexterous or kind of more open sense of how to necessarily develop, which means that, you know, they're not raising questions about human rights, for instance, or other kind of democratically inclined reforms. And so that presented a, a somewhat of an interesting place to think from in terms of how to conceptualize uh, both China's engagements abroad, but also how does China in itself then engage with local arrangements? What kind of support exactly is China getting? And when did this sort of diplomacy arm or diplomacy factor begin? When did this sort of process start and what kind of what kind of benefits is it getting? There's not an immediate direct correlation between kind of economic support and diplomatic outcomes. It's kind of a, a longer story about kind of how China engages with Africa. So if you really wanted to think about Chinese and African diplomatic relations, you kind of have to think about a very much modern mid 20th century story about the kind of the post the formation of the, the modern Republic of China and it wanting to effectively uh, extend the kind of friendships and arms abroad. And when China really started kind of building diplomatical relations with Africa, you know, it was about, about you know, 50s and 60s um, and so forth. You know, this is not the particular first time we've seen, you know, China offer financial assistance to Africa. You know, some of the bigger projects emerged from like 1976 with the Tanzanian Railroad. And so it's not particularly new in terms of wanting diplomatical relations with Africa and Africa supporting China at the intergovernmental level. It's in part, it's always been about a kind of a South-South identity or, you know, identity with a kind of historical encounter with colonialism and then building um, relations beyond the kind of the global North and the structurations and conditions that produced the exploitations uh, in the global south. And at least that's what, you know, you you find uh, China insisting on when it's engaging, you know, with Africa. It's kind of insisting on principles that come come out of the kind of the post-colonial moment. And it is it is those conditions that then enable a kind of diplomatic engagement. And then the financial support part is, is that, you know, obviously, you know, China is, uh, with most of its engagements on the continent, is preoccupied with securing um, material means in order to support its domestic economic activity. And so there's that part of it. And then the other part of it is that thing, one also has to then have a more complicated sense of why they are economically engaging. And, and part of that, it also has to then do with how it's supporting its diplomatic missions with Africa, which is connected to this longer history uh, of diplomacy with the continent. So officially, these surveillance technologies are often being marketed as without any any political strings attached, but sure. we know that it is not entirely so. How, how is surveillance technology marketed in Africa from China? You know, this is the kind of the, the demand side of the story, which is, you know, so, you know, why are African both national and subnational actors purchasing some of these surveillance technologies. And in part, a lot of these surveillance technologies don't, you know, simply come on their own. You know, they come almost as a kind of an assemblage of the bundle of other technologies that are aimed to effectively deal with some of the social political consequences of institutional voids that 
are partly connected with an older history of a colonial encounter, but also connected with a kind of uh, developmental uh, wish. And so they are mostly framed as a kind of instrument to overcome developmental challenges, as a kind of, I call it, a conscripted elixir to structurally address issues that then are somewhat deeper than, you know, what the technologies can in fact offer, at least immediately. An elixir, um, elixir for who? An, an elixir for the for the issues, for the social issues uh, that they're currently facing. So whether it be crime or a kind of administrative backlog or simply kind of public management and so forth. Uh, and so that's what on the kind of the demand side is being wanted. On the supply end of it, it's really kind of connected both with um, with China's wish to kind of expand its geopolitical footprint, build diplomatic relations with Africa, and then on the more kind of corporate end of it, it's really about kind of Chinese companies, specifically companies like Huawei and CTE, to kind of further establish and integrate themselves into alternative markets. What is quite interesting, specifically about Huawei, is looking at Huawei's long history in Africa. Most coverage, you know, is mostly interested in kind of speculating about its activities in the last three, four years, but Huawei has really been somewhat active on the continent since really the mid-90s going forward. And that is in, in direct correlation with China's go-out strategy. And it's also directly linked with then the earliest movement of wanting ICT infrastructure for development on the continent. And so when you're thinking about Huawei's activities on the continent, you kind of have to think about its long active engagement. And Huawei's success on the continent is in part connected with the, the kind of absence of Western competition. You know, we have to kind of also remember this is the mid-90s and so forth. There was not a prodigious want or engagement with African markets at the time because of the assumptions of political instability with uh, across the continent. It was also kind of connected with the failure of the post structural adjustment period for development. And so there was kind of a ripe opportunity for Chinese companies like Huawei to be active in both political and economic environments that looked quite similar to China, specifically rural China. And so for them, it felt as though that they had somewhat of um, at least a kind of critical edge beating out Western competition that did remain on the continent at that time, in part because of their familiarity with a developing context. And it is kind of from then on that you kind of see its general growth on the continent. And so then some of these surveillance technologies are coming as a part of this kind of longer history of, um, of activity. So you would say that since Huawei developed a lot of its early technological edge at the absence of American competition on the continent of Africa, you would you would argue that it is less so that China or Huawei is now exporting technology to Africa from China, but more so that it is just part of its technological development. The cyber, you know, the cybersecurity part or the kind of the surveillance part of it is one thread in a larger digital infrastructure initiative, which is not to say that there's not a cybersecurity threat. You know, what I try and somewhat illustrate in my own personal work is that a lot of these kind of surveillance technologies that are being incorporated into the governing architecture of the country is almost, in a lot of ways, running ahead of the kind of available legislative architecture in order to manage introduction of these technologies. I say, you know, there are multiple moving variables as to why there's suddenly an increase in a warranted surveillance. And it can include 
more than just one company. Is there a regulatory appetite towards tech regulation and data privacy and cybersecurity and surveillance technologies on the African continent? There is a general growing attention towards the need for uh, cybersecurity regulation. For instance, you know, Kenya initiated the kind of data protection measure in 2018, and that reflects more of a kind of the general European model towards it. My general concerns there is that there might not necessarily be domestic capacity in order to actually enforce the want of these legislation. But if you're thinking more broadly, you're thinking about the continent, only about half of the countries in Africa have anything on paper about data management and protection. And then at the regional level, there was 2014 AU Convention on Cybersecurity, but unfortunately, only about five countries signed on to it, and you need about 15 for the ratification and for its enforcement. And so thus far, there is an African-led architecture that's been thought up, but it's, it's not been completely implemented yet. Do you think that the policymakers are getting more inspiration, so to speak, from, for example, the EU's GDPR or from Chinese laws? If I, if I imagine if, if there is more technology coming from China than opposed to Europe, would they perhaps be getting more regulatory inspiration or even help from, from China? Where, well, where do they orient themselves? They mostly oriented themselves towards Europe, in fact, at least at the legislative level. And I think in part, it just generally has to do with the predilection towards wanting to build robust data protection measures. But there is no direct correlation between the use of Chinese technology and then the adoption of Chinese normative value systems in terms of governance. And, and that's why, you know, I, I, I try and illustrate within my own personal work that, you know, the exportation of a Chinese normative framework of governance is not really what's in question. What's really in question is how local actors are utilizing these Chinese, you know, sourced technologies and how these Chinese sourced technologies are also being utilized in a time where the commercial streams of purchasing digital technologies go beyond China in itself and that they are somewhat, you know, learning how to integrate and uh, technologies that have been both sourced from Europe and China to build um, a surveillance kind of apparatus. Now, this doesn't, of course, doesn't mean that there's not a, a general strategy. I think one has to kind of look more carefully at like how China chooses to interact with intergovernmental bodies and is currently kind of trying to aim to change how we regulate these kinds of technologies at the intergovernmental level. And that you know might then have consequences for them how other, you know, countries, um, the global south, are going to do it in the future. But currently, there's no, you know, immediate sense of this um, happening in Kenya, or at least in some of the other countries I look at. So you talk a lot about the the demand side that is so important in just Mm. the way these technologies are used. Is there a big difference between European or other companies, other companies' technology compared to Chinese technology in terms of what they allow governments or police forces or whoever's using this technology to to do with it? Is there a big difference? So the the difference actually doesn't really lie at the level of the technical capacities of the instrument themselves. 
um, the actual difference lies in how they are procured because of how China is able to mostly offer more financially available technologies uh, to African governments. That's why there's such a wide distribution of them as it relates to other European source technologies. And so it's really the question in terms of how does uh, kind of Chinese corporate actors work alongside Chinese state financing instruments that support the expansion across the continent. And when, you know, some of these technologies um, are being imported, a lot of the time, the distinction in terms of how they're being best utilized by a given country is contingent on the kind of political environment in which they're being brought into. And these companies never really ask questions exactly as to how these technologies are going to be best utilized by the given country. And so they simply give the technology and then say, we're not going to ask you how you're going to utilize it. And it is this kind of almost amoral commitments that then either allows for these technologies to be put to use for, you know, governance reasons or to be used for political surveillance. And so, you know, selling technology to Zimbabwe, which has, you know, a history of a human rights violation record is quite questionable, juxtaposed to possibly selling, you know, um, a technology to a relatively healthy democracy who might utilize it in, in different ways. What big events in this space of China-Africa surveillance relationships did you pay particular attention to this year? And what developments will you be watching for in 2022? Well, I'm mostly looking in terms of like, you know, what the FOCAC meetings, you know, just unfolded in Dakar. So that's the most important thing uh, that's recently unfolded for us in terms of the study of Africa-China and that is going to kind of structure then the conditions of how we conceptualize Africa-China relations going forward. And then there's there's a meeting happening between the EU and African Union in February, correct? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's also going to be an important kind of platform to start thinking about how can necessarily Europe respond to China's active involvement in the continent. Obviously, these responses I always tell people need to be more inclined to understanding the local environment in order to ensure their success on the continent. Thus far, you know, the criticisms of China have been simply contingent on thinking about China as an, as an externality rather than thinking about how does Chinese efforts support local wants and framing your response to China. People should be thinking about well, how does this active expansion by China not necessarily serve domestic interests? And how can they then, you know, make a case for how their own domestic interests uh, can be best supported by finding alternatives beyond China? Well, thank you so much, Jili, for talking to me about this very interesting topic, which is sure to dominate a lot of our thinking uh, in the next year and beyond. So thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to also tracking your work in this field as well. Definitely. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for your time and consideration. And, you know, I hope that this conversation can be somewhat more instructive in terms of how we choose to think about China's engagement with the world. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.